0: There we go. We're live. We're not live. We're pre-taped. But regardless, you and I are live right now on this uh, APS radio show. I've got uh, Brendan McDonough. Did I say that right? Yeah. Yep. Right. One for one. Um, you know, the Lone Survivor, the Grand Mountain Hotshots, And we're going to, to uh, do a little bit, I think, just a little bit different than usual. You know, I want you to tell your story. Uh, but we're going to really concentrate on the post-traumatic growth part. Um, kind of the sequel if you will if you were to write another book that's where we're going to be so with that if you don't mind then you probably do mind but regardless jump into uh, June 30th 2013 for uh, myself and the listeners please
1: yeah no thank you Jim I, I appreciate the opportunity man and it's it's always great to be able to talk about my brothers and I think it's so important like we were talking about in previous calls just to lay that context and so June 30th, 2013, um, about two and a half years into my fire service career. And the, the fire service really saved my life from a pretty pretty rough adolescent drug use and, and teenage drug use. And so, you know, just this radical transformation through the fire service with brotherhood and just sense of community and being able to give back. And so we were called to a local fire here in Arizona. And so we travel all over the country, you know, to fight wildfires. And so to kind of have something in your backyard's important. 'Cause it's it's personal, right? And it's it's like if a structured firefighter was fighting a fire in their neighborhood, it's just it's just that much more personal for you. And so we were called and um so we get we get moving down the hill to Yarnell. It's about an hour and a half drive and just trying to gather as much information as you can and is is most good hot shots if you're if you're on your way to your fire, you don't know if you're running a 36 hour shift, 24 hour shift straight of just digging and cutting lines. So you know trying to get a power nap in, trying to hydrate up and you know, trying to just make sure everyone's good, checking in on each other, ready to go for the day. And we get down there and fire activity is pretty minimal. You know, it was a lightning strike fire, I believe, and they kind of decided to to just let it kind of burn through and do some fuels mitigation naturally. And you know that's not uncommon whatsoever on a wildfire. And so we, we get in and we get, we get hiking and it's probably about eight, nine o'clock in the morning. And I, and I realize it's hot, like it's, it's a warm one and the humidity's like, it, it was just an interesting, interesting temperature from the get go. I'll never forget kind of just the sweat that came off from, from that hike in. And so we get to the top of the mountain and our goal is to just establish an anchor point on this fire. And start flanking it and just you know whether we're doing burn operations or direct line indirect line just trying to get something solid established on this fire that we can start working off because. There, there is the potential that morning for for homes to be threatened and so as the mornings going on, I was chosen to be the lookout. And so I talked to my captain and superintendent about some of the objectives that I had and some that they had and kind of just identifying a good spot to be located at and um, grabbed my pack and, and started started on my way. And during that time, there was another soup meeting with our soup to discuss the plan of attack and just kind of what was going to potentially progress throughout the day. And so they offered to give me a ride. And I was like, hey, why not, right? And so I hop in the back of this UTV and – say bye to the guys and, and the crew and, you know, um, get moving down to my lookout spot. And when I get there, man, there's there was an ounce of, ounce of shade. And so I'm just kind of perched up on this rock and I'm, I'm watching the fire way off to the north end. And we're on the south end of this fire. And kind of my objective was to just watch weather on the hour, you know, take weather, listen to the radio, relay information. And then if I seen anything, that was kind of different from what the crew could be seeing with the fire to to relay that and as the day progressed with with any wildfire it starts picking up and you know for us it was just moving north so it's moving away from us so it's not not anything out of the normal until later on in the afternoon we start hearing about you know some late afternoon early evening some weather events this weather event that's coming in and it's supposed to you know, turn this fire completely around and bring winds of about 60 miles an hour. And I've been on fires with some pretty erratic behavior. Um, I've been on fires where it burned faster in the evening than it did the day. You know, it was a fire in New Mexico and I've seen, you know, some pretty strong winds, but nothing to that extent really of watching a fire completely turned around due to being wind-driven and so I remember, you know, relaying that information to my my cap and superintendent um, Jesse Steed and Eric Marsh and the rest of the crew, and just just watching, right? Just trying to anticipate this. And they said it's you know it's going to hit the north end of the fire, and we're on the south end, mind you, in an hour. And so we've got an hour till it hits, you know, the complete north end. And so within the next probably I, I want to say like 15, 20 minutes, I started feeling this weather change and started seeing it. so I'm kind of relaying that back to the crew and they're seeing something different because they're on the top of a ridge almost and I'm kind of in the bottom of this valley and you know just the difference in weather there right and that elevation within within you know a short amount of distance was was pretty impressive And so as I'm watching this fire it really didn't turn around instantaneously it, it just started moving kind of like north east and kind of just like a clock just started clicking you know towards towards east which is where the homes are at and that's what we're out there to do is you know protect lives save property and preserve the forest and so within within a, a short amount of time this fire started kind of backing on itself. So not only is it moved east but it's now starting to back on itself and I'm watching and I'm going, man, this, this weather events, it's got to be coming pretty quick. And, you know, within a few minutes, it really picks up. And so it's starting to gain some momentum moving South. And so I'm closer to the fire than my crew and our, our buggies are in a location where they're potentially threatened when this thing turns around. So I radio to my my captain superintendent, and I tell him like, hey, you know, this fire's starting to back on itself. I think it's probably time for me to re- relocate. And they're like, you know, a firm we're agreeing. Why don't you go ahead and hike, hike down to the, the main road, and we'll you know we'll guide you out of there. Um, and so as I'm hiking out, I'm looking back, and I'm starting to see like the smoke pick up, and I'm like, man, this thing's this thing's really moving. And I'm kind of down from my vantage point. And so I can't really see the entire fire, but I've got my crew up top who, who has a bird's eye view of this thing. And uh, as I'm hitting that two track road, I can see the smoke. And I'm like, man, this, this road's about to be cut off. And I'm like, gosh, I, I got to think quick. And within like a second, that superintendent that picked me up earlier was down in the valley they were cutting line and he's bombing in his utv and he's like hey man jump in so i jump in and i hand him my radio he's like hey why don't you tell your soup what's going on and i'm like hey I've, i've got you know two and a half years of service versus like 15 plus here's here's my radio right you're gonna be able to give better description of what's going on and i'm sure you guys are gonna connect anyways and so he jumps on and says hey i've got donut with me and we're gonna grab your buggies and, and get into town, and we'll, we'll meet up with you later today. And um, as we're headed towards the buggy, this this fire is really moving, and it's still progressing east though. Like, but it's backing, you know. So it's got this really weird pattern in this storm that's that's bringing this weather in, is off to the north, and it's getting closer and closer. And so in our heads, we're thinking we've got you know an hour, right? We've got this this long time frame going on and so we get pulled out and I'm with this other hotshot crew and so we move to the north end of town and um, this is probably a 5 10 minute drive and by the time we get up there we hop out of the rigs and we've maybe got our feet on the ground for 5 minutes and we're starting to get huge embers and this fire's turned around it it it's made its switch and it's not kind of getting some random gust, it's really pushing to the south end of town and so we pull out of there because our objective was to you know potentially burn off a dozer line and and try and save those homes but there was just too much fire being put on the ground too many spot fires um, from that fire and so we get pulled out and we get back into town and I mean this thing's moving I mean it was impressive fire behavior and I and I've seen Things similar but nothing like this to where the fires you know laying over on itself and just progressing and I remember a reporter once said it, it skipped it skipped with the wind you know and it that's that's stuck with me for for years you know since that day of how how fast that fire was moving and so during that time frame my brother started moving down their escape route to their safety zone to get back into town because it was requested. Hey, if you guys can make it back into town, we could use you. And um, you know, this fire is really starting to burn, and we're starting to lose homes. And you know, the game plan is really changing for for what's going on. And the evacuations have been ongoing since this thing started turning. So they're trying to make sure everyone's getting evacuated. Um, it's a change of teams. So the IC team is, is changing during the afternoons. There's just a lot of, a lot of moving parts that are going on. And I remember sitting in the buggy kind of waiting for, for the next, next assignment, you know, cause it's, there's any firefighter, it's tough to sit there and just watch, right. Um, watch homes start to burn and, and, you know, it's our job. That, that's what we signed up for is to, to save homes and protect those people. And uh I hear over the radio that, that they're requesting an airdrop and I'm like, what's going on? And then right after that, I hear my superintendent come over and they're, they're preparing a deployment site. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, like, what, what's going on? Like, I thought we had time, you know? And, um, so the whole team's, Objective shifts, right? We've got now we've got firefighters that are going to deploy. And I'm just trying to comprehend this and wrap my brain around it. And so we're collecting medical services. You know, um, they're asking me, like, hey, who's, who's there? And I'm like, everyone, like every crew member but me is, is together. And, you know, these are the tools they're carrying. This is, you know, who had a chainsaw, who had a domar, just running down as many details as I possibly could to them. And trying to pinpoint exactly where they were. And while that's going on, we're we're losing this town essentially. And they're trying to gain access to where my brothers are and you know render medical services we don't know what's gonna happen. We don't know, you know, how how intense this burnover is gonna be. And there's been in history, you know, men and women that have made it out of burnovers, and so we're They're calling in ambulances and air evacs just to be prepared for this. And they can't find them. We can't find them. We can't get through the roads because there's just so much fire on the ground. There's propane tanks that are, you know, blown off 30, 40, 50, 60 foot tanks, you know, with flames because they're in a rural area. So most people have propane. and there's, you know, at this point in time, there's 20, 30, 40 homes, 50 homes that are being lost. And we can't get there and we're trying to get radio communication and we, we, we can't get connected. And so they put up a DPS helicopter with a, a paramedic on it to try and track them down. And what felt like minutes was hours, right? And, um, you know, we hear, hey, we've got eyes on them. We're, we're going to touch down and hike in. And so trying to cross coordinate getting there. And, you know, over the radio, I hear this guy and he's like, I've got 19 confirmed. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, man, I I gave you guys the roster. I told you who was there. You know, like, we know there's 19. And it hit me that my brothers had just passed. And it was, it was such a raw moment for me and my mind instantly kind of went into that protective mode of like, well, maybe someone made it out or why, why wasn't it me when the road was almost cut off? Why wasn't I the person that deployed? Why wasn't I with them? And in my head, I'm just broken, and I'm sitting in this this our buggies, and I can't and I can't comprehend what just happened. And this fire's still moving, like there's still a job at hand, and um, and I just start sobbing, I just break down, and um, as I'm sitting there crying, you know, minutes, ten minutes. I couldn't even tell you, Jim, the time that it passed by. Uh, I see, I hear a phone call. A phone's ringing. I've got my phone in my pocket and it's not mine. I'm sitting there thinking, man, someone, one of the guys left their phone here. And, you know, at this point in time, it's starting to get out, but people don't know who it is. They don't know what crew. And so... I'm telling myself like, Brennan, don't, don't look at that phone. Don't look at that phone. And, uh, I open the center console and I look down and I see that's one of my, one of my brother's wives. And it, and it hit me that, um, that phone will never be picked up again. That, uh, that call will never be answered. And um, they don't even know what's going on. And I'm, and, and I'm thinking about their son. And I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking about the other kids, the wives, the families. And I'm like, why? Why am I here? I, I, it was so weird how my mind thought that I could maybe turn back time, that I could maybe change this, and it, and it was just impossible. And everything that I had in my life at that point in time, I owed to the fire service and those men, um, but it was all gone within a, with what felt like a blink of an eye. I just felt so hopeless and so broken and so lost. And that night we, you know, we they try and do a debriefing and they obviously could see that I couldn't do it. They're trying to encourage me to go home. I was like, I want to be on the mountain with my brothers. I heard, I heard some people are there. I want to be there. And uh, thank God they didn't let me go there thank god so i went to the high school where all the families were meeting former crew members just just people that were intimately involved in in their lives husbands wives parents and you know there's families from out of state that are trying to fly in and they're getting there and just flashing lights cop cars fire trucks they've got the middle school blocked off and people are walking in the auditorium And I'm thinking to myself, Brennan, just just hold it together. Just hold it together. Because these men and women have lost a loved one. Um, They've lost uh, a son, a a dad, a father. So just hold it together. And I get out and I go to walk in and I see a captain that was in my academy. And he, he gives me a hug he's crying. He's big, man. He's six foot two, six foot three, 220 pounds. And he's crying and I'm choking it back. And I I just let it go. And I'm I'm just crying in him and his shirt soaked. And, you know, I'm like, Hey, Jeff, I I gotta get in there. I see some crew members that were there from, you know, previous years that i worked with that really were great leaders of mine. And they're they're crying their their faces are red and it's like man I I don't even know what to do like I didn't want to be there in a sense that I don't want to be alive I wanted to be there because I felt like I owed those families and everyone else everything that I had because I had been given so much I remember walking into the the auditorium and you know I knew some of the families didn't know some of the families and I remember just seeing the look of them knowing like who survived they had known who passed they, the comprehension of who survived really wasn't there and uh, I just see it on their faces just the I don't. I don't want to say it was disappointment from them, but just the gut wrenching impact in the reality that it wasn't their loved one walking through the door, that it was that it was me, and um, I couldn't take it. And so I turned around and walked out and found a corner to just fold into and uh, just break down. And I'm sure some people approached me and I probably didn't even realize it, probably pushed them away. And man, that was, that's when the blur began, you know? um, The things that would happen after that, that I would experience, many of them would be just as, just as traumatizing. Uh, You know, going home that night, Seeing, seeing my family for the first time, not feeling worthy of seeing them, you know, waking up that next morning and having nowhere to go to um, and the reality of setting in of like, I, I'll never see him again. And for, for weeks, months, you know, um, funerals, memorials you know i i don't i don't want to be too graphic but i think it's important for listeners to to hear this piece is uh when we did the procession i remember driving down with my with my chief and just like being in and out of sleep you know because i wasn't sleeping good i was up all through the night and we get down there and they were loaded in the hearses and we come back and it, it was very powerful and very moving. And we get, get up to the mortuary up in the Prescott area and say, Hey, if you'd like to help, you know, transfer the bodies to the mortuary, just, you know, please, please, uh, please come help. And I've never been a part of something like that. And I didn't, I didn't realize, you know, in my head, I imagine a casket, right. But in reality, I'm looking at a body bag, and I've I've got that mentality, right? Of, of, you know, being a firefighter, being a the hero that people are saying I am, and I'm like, I can't, I can't step away now, right? I can't step back now. And so we're moving them in there, and there's just there's just things and moments like that that I'll that I'll never forget. And uh, just just countless things, you know, not being able to be around a campfire. I loved fighting fire. I loved it. I loved it almost more than anything in this world. You know, and it was gone. And the support system I had was gone overnight.
0: It's kind of like you you just got you went to a a different assignment from there you know your new assignment was to honor them you're here you're left here what can I do for them and for their families yeah I know and you kind of already mentioned a little bit of it but you know you you put yourself to the side and you just worried about them so you did you went to 19 funerals you know, memorials all over the place, um, talk shows, you know, Good Morning America is the, you know, everybody wanted to talk to you, you were, you were it. And, uh, you know, the fundraisers, the, the conferences, um, you know, writing a book, uh, wanting to make sure that the narrative was out there, but it was the right narrative. It was their narrative, their story. Then nobody was influencing
1: that. Mm -hmm. Um, There was no time to heal. There was no window of, uh, hey, here's a time period, because I felt felt like the least I could do is show up and, and tell this story and honor them. The least I could do is make sure that it's told right. And I had in my mind that, you know, because all of the families at this time were super close. And so I had in my mind, if I I did an interview, that's one less time a wife had to get on camera and cry and relive that experience. And I felt like that was my job, was to to put my brothers and these families first. And very early on, it obviously became very ineffective for me in my life because I started drinking heavily.
0: Yeah, it seems like there was, you know, I know you you felt like you were doing the right thing, but there was a um, side effects, personally, yeah. from doing that. Um, I mean, depression. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, it
1: was, it was dark, Jim. It was, it was dark. Man, I've never. Had so many people reach out to me and be surrounded by so many people and feel yet so alone. And there was a there's a piece of me that was stubborn. You know, there's there's a piece of me that didn't want the help. You know, they'd set me up with counselors or this and that. I didn't I didn't want it. How how could this counselor understand or begin to comprehend what I had been through? You don't get it, you weren't there. You haven't walked 10 steps in, in my shoes. So why, why should I open up to you about this? And I took that mentality to just suck it up. Like, you know, some gave all right. And I didn't give all. So what do I have to complain about?
0: You know, you had a quote in your book that I don't want to read. You obviously had lots of quotes cause it's your book, but, uh, <laughs> why did my brothers die and leave me here? Why did they take me with them? Is it possible to continue without them? I mean, just, I can't imagine the survivor's guilt.
1: Why, why you? Jim, I, it's so tough for me to even admit this, but for, for years, I suffered before, before finding help for years, not just months, but years. I spent haunted in my sleep by the experiences that I, that I had had. By that day, by the homes burning, the, the, that, that whole burnover situation, everything that would come after it, um, man, I probably sleep, you know, two to four hours a night, maybe, even with drinking, trying to just suppress, suppress, suppress. And I thought, because everyone told me, you know, it'll get better and soon, time heals all. You know, God's got something so big planned for you. I, I couldn't see it. And I and by people saying that, I thought, okay, well, somehow I'm supposed to be able to handle this and deal with this. And this is just the new normal. And on the outside, my, my family and friends are going, I'm 22 at the time. They're like, man, we're like, if he sees 25, you know, I've got loved ones talking to me about an insurance policy that includes you know overdose and suicide because they're so concerned they're so worried you know i've i've got suicidal ideation haunting me every day in my sleep every every corner i turn around was another reminder i live in prescott that's the community of it hit the hardest every t-shirt every person that would come up and say, Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. And they'd start crying, you know, and, and it's, and it was nice. It was kind. They did that out of love, but I didn't comprehend. You and were getting, yeah, you were getting,
0: you were getting recognized in times square. Yeah. You know, it, it's, a, uh, uh, you know, anti-fame.
1: It's, 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 it was nothing that nobody wants to be famous for. Right, it's not a it's not a marathon. It's not a race. Anybody wants to win, it's, it's a title that no one wants to have. And man, the pressure killed me. It it almost literally killed me. It, it it forced me into severe alcoholism, and the PTSD was crippling. I want
0: I want to touch on that real quick before you got um, you know before the Hot Shots took you in as one of your own one of their own, you had pretty sketchy history.
1: You yeah, know, I was a felon.
0: Felon, um, alcohol, Drug use. drugs. And you got on there and it was like, I mean, it was the first time you belonged. It was a, mm-hmm. a you know, light switch hit. and I know it was uh, obviously reading a book, seeing a movie. Uh, a lot of that had to do with your daughter getting, yeah. getting on the right path. But when you're stuck with these pressures um, at one point, I mean, you, you started falling back off that path again and old habits became the norm again. Is that right? Yeah. Old
1: habits become new behaviors. And, you know, i I remember, I remember walking in rooms of people that would kind of be talking about me and wondering is it gonna be an overdose? Is it gonna be a DUI? Is it gonna be suicide? Like this kid just won't get help, you know? And um, I mean, there's rumors going around that I was shooting up dope again. You know, I've never put a needle on my arm. Thank God I've been deathly afraid of needles my entire life, but rightfully so. These people had these fears and I had the fear in my head too. You know, it was like, I, I can't even explain how the thought of suicide, it was like, I, I, I couldn't shut it off at some points in times. It'd come in my head and I'm like, that's not, that's not what I want. That's, that's not, that's not what I want to do. You know, it's like, just do it. Just pull the trigger, just pull the trigger. And I'm like, what? Like this internal sickness battle in my head. I couldn't escape it. I couldn't. Like I couldn't drink enough. I couldn't take enough pain pills. I couldn't spend enough time with my daughter. I couldn't spend enough time at the gravesite. I couldn't give enough energy effort to be able to escape this darkness that just took my head. I couldn't hike far enough. I couldn't run far enough. I couldn't get away from the things that were just hitting me every day like a freight train. And I was so just young and stubborn, right? That young fireman, young firefighter that I wouldn't take help. Yeah, I tried meeting with counselors and one counselor gave me a poem on like a lone wolf or something. And I'm like, what is this shit? Like, How is that supposed to help me? Take your poem. And, you know, there's the door, right? And uh, it didn't matter, Jim. Like I, I every coping skill that I tried to use you know, I thought I was sick. I was so depressed and so sleep deprived and, and so out of it. I thought I was sick. I thought I had cancer or something. I'm like, what's good? Like 23, 24. I'm like, I, I was active, dude. I could run a half marathon, you know, and I go to my doctor and I'm like, man, you got to do blood work. And he's like, well, I mean, there's a few little things off here, but there's not much Brennan, you know, maybe it's, like, you think you might be depressed? I'm like, nah, I don't get depressed, man. That's, that's, I didn't lose a spouse. I didn't lose a dad. I don't, I didn't lose a child. Those feelings are not, those are not mine. You know, uh, they're, they're not rightfully mine to have. And um, it was, it was dark. It was dark for years. I figured, well, this is it. I guess I'll just keep keep doing what I'm doing and, until one day it just stops.
0: You know, you just mentioned the darkness. At what point did you start seeing light? At what point did somebody or something grab your attention to where the trajectory the changed? You started going yeah. up instead of down you know what what was the was the one thing was it multiple things i mean just you know i know you're here talking to me now you're in a different place mm-hmm. but what what started that change
1: man it was it was multiple things over multiple years um but it started with a conversation with carrie Romella. And i know a lot of people know carrie because she's so she's so active in the mental health community within the fire service and has just done some amazing work and um, we're at Emmitsburg. So it's about a year year and a few months after the tragedy and we're go through the go through the memorial service and I'm sitting there and I can't get this ringing out of my head right last alarm ding ding and there's 19 of them. I can't it's piercing, right It's like tonight it's just piercing my head. And they're like all right we're going to the odd house right and i'm like perfect i forgot i could use a drink i could use 10 15 of them and so i go straight to the bar i sit down and i'm like hey let me get let me get five let me get five jack daniels they go well, what do you want shots or i'm like four fingers five of them you know, and, and they're like, oh, okay, that's cool. Grab some drinks for your friends, you know, trying to be conversational with me. And I'm like, no, these are for me. This is this, this is a start. So I'll be back, you know, just, just keep them coming. So I'm sitting there drinking and everyone's, you know, raising a toast and, and this and that, conversating and having emotional conversation. I'm just sitting there, head down, just drinking. Carrie comes up with that smile that many know. And uh, she puts her hand on my shoulder, and I look over, and I'm like, "Hi, Carrie." She goes, "How you doing?" At this time, I've probably I've probably told 10, 20, 30 thousand people the same thing. I'm doing okay, you know. Um, I'll get through this, you know. I've got a daughter to live for, so I'll get through this. And some came over me, and. A week prior, so in between Colorado Springs and in between Amherstburg, I put the put a gun to my head. I'm in my truck. I'm screaming at myself just to pull the trigger. This image of my daughter pops in my head. She's dancing in my living room. And I come to and the gun's in my lap and I'm like, what are you doing? Like, you got to get help, man. But I didn't know how to reach out. And so that came to my mind. I'm like, you know what? Just tell her the truth. And so I, I tell her, I'm like, hey, Carrie, uh, I'm not doing good. And I'm sure this isn't helping. I'm probably like fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh drink in, right? And um, I tell her last week, I, I put a gun to my head. and I, I couldn't seem to pull the trigger. And so I'm wondering why I'm still here. And so she's talking with me. And at this time, I'm pretty intoxicated. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. And so I'm just dumping on her, you know, and vetting, and she's just listening. She's listening, and she's like, "Brendan, do you do you want help?" I'm like, "Yeah, more than anything." She's like, "Do you want to be a dad?" And Carrie knew how to reach me, and this this was a very important moment in my life. She goes, "I know how important it is to be a dad to do you, do you. Do you want to be a dad again?" I kind of took a little bit of offense to it because I fought so hard to be a dad. Got sober, got in the fire service, went through custody battles, you know, year after year to, to be a dad, not just a part-time weekend dad, but just a dad that's there, that's present. And she goes, Well, what about seeing a counselor? I'm like, the last dude you sent me to, or whoever she said, I didn't send you to him. Someone else did. I'm like, gave me some lone wolf poem. That's that's supposed to help me, right? You know, and do try doing some voodoo magic on me and like <laughs> here i am still drinking still miserable and she goes well, what if what if i help find you a counselor that that you know has worked with first responders and that is just that willing to work with you and i said if you can find somebody i'm, I'm willing and she i don't remember the exact words but she pretty much she pretty much called me out and said if you're willing to put the work in right then you you might have an opportunity of being the dad you want to be again I thought to myself, I'm like, I was a hot shot. Like, you know how hard I worked? I knew her husband was a structural firefighter. I said, you know the difference, right? Like one person runs EMS claws and they got an imprint on the recliner of their shirt. I've got an imprint of my pack on my back, right? Like that's the difference of who puts in hard work. I was a smart ass, dumb kid, you know? And she goes, oh really? And you know, she made some comments and just really took it well, and so I keep drinking, and so we get on the plane the next day or two. And she's talking to me. She's like, "You still going to go to counseling, or is that you just drunk?" I said, "If you can find me a counselor that can work with me to allow me to be a dad again, I'll, I'll be there." It's so about a week goes by. And I show up and it's with this this lady, and she does EMDR, and I still don't even can't even get the terms right. We sit down, we do the pre assessment, you know, just kind of the, the familiar. So I come back the following week and she's like, All right, are you ready to start? I'm like, Yeah. And so she starts asking me questions. She's like, How are you feeling? I said, Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. You know, so we do that for about 15 minutes. And she's just like, Are you going to give me anything or we just going to sit here and get one answered questions? I'm like, I don't, like, I don't know what you want from me. She's like, well, you're here because you need help, right? And I'm like, yeah. Right, one answered question again. And She's like, do you, like, let me explain this to you. If you don't work through this, you're not going to get through it. So the pain that you have in the back of your mind that you're not willing to tell me is going to continue to sit there if we don't talk about it. And I'm like, same thing with Carrie. I'm like, what do I have to lose? What do I got to lose? You tell every every other person your story, let her have it. So it was supposed to be like an hour session turning into a two-hour session. I, I just gave her everything, Jim. Anything and everything that bothered me, every sleepless night, every nightmare, you know, the guilt, the shame, the depression, suicidal ideation. I just dump it on her. And she's like, does that feel better? You know, and I'm like, no, not at all. I actually feel worse now, you know, like this was not helpful. And she's like, well, I want want you to come back in two days. And I walk out and there was someone sitting in the lobby waiting to go in because it was supposed to be an hour. And I think she had texted that person in the middle and they're like, they were crying. Because I was so loud, right? Just expressing all these things like go home hit the bottle and so I show up in two days and so she's trying to explain to me this like EMDR thing she's like okay you're gonna follow this and it's gonna unlock your brain and this is what we're gonna do and I'm like oh uh, you gotta be kidding me like this doesn't make sense so we're trying to do this I'm ADHD and I'm like I can't do this like you got any other methods or something she's like well this is what we do for little kids am <laughs> like she hands me these little buzzer things, right? So I'm holding these buzzers and I'm squeezing them. I got my eyes closed. She's trying to walk me through this EMDR stuff. I'm stuck, man. She's like, Brennan, to get through it, you got to go through it. You said you want to be a dad. You said you want to put the work in. You talked about how hard it is being a hotshot. Let's put the work in. And her son was a, was a veteran and uh, she'd opened up a little bit to me. And so I trusted her and I said, her son serves. He's going through it right now. Um, I don't know what to extent, what, what extent, but um, she knows, she knows what to do. And so I hit her, I hit her with, you know, the burnover over and the guilt. So we've got these buzzies going and, like, um, you know, mind-blowing experience. And we're tracing back these feelings, emotions, right, the negative beliefs that we have. And she's like, so you, you feel guilty, right, for not being there? And I'm like, yeah, like wholeheartedly. And these buzzers are going off. And she starts kind of probing me. And we get to the question. She's like, so you, you just told me how it went. And you, you feel like that was an honest, honest uh, depiction of what happened. I said, yeah, of course. She goes, so, so your captain told you to leave your lookout spot, right? I said, yeah. She goes, so he didn't tell you to come back up to the crew, right? I said, no, he told me to go move the buggies and to meet him in town. And she goes, well what are some other examples of, you know, taking direct orders and, and listening I kind of listed off a few. I'm like, you know, one time had to go grab a QB. So, you know, big old box of water for the crew ride or do ups, just, just things like that. Just giving her examples of like taking directions and taking orders. She goes, you trust him, right? I said, I trust him with my life. She said, would you have followed him into that Canyon? I said, I would have followed him in that Canyon 110% any day. And she goes, what was different than the order that he gave you to go move the buggies? I, I feel cold chills. I got goosebumps down. I remember sitting there going, damn. Last two and a half years. Is guilt and shame that's been trying to kill me within this buzzy, tap-tap clinical office just helped me understand that it wasn't mine to own. That in that moment, I'm not listening to him. Are you serious? That was my captain. That, that man was like a hero to me, along with all the guys in the crew. And so I'm crying just even 10 times more than I am now. And she goes, how do you feel now? I said, I feel like this, this weight's been lifted. I feel really drained, you know, emotionally drained. She goes, all right, well, you're going to, you're going to come back twice a week for however long it takes. And so for, nine months we're going through emdr twice a week and um we're just tackling these different these different points of disturbances right as life is continuing on so it's so it's it's ongoing you know we start counseling and it's like oh it's litigation time 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 for attorneys Right, time for the lawsuits. I've got, you know, city attorneys accusing me of saying something, calling me a liar. I've got, you know, people being pinned against me. And I'm like, man, I, I can't, you know, my attorney's like, just wait, Brennan in court, it'll all, it'll all come out. So I'm processing all this. I'm in a head-on collision with my wife in a car. Guy blows a stop sign a stoplight doing 45 smacks his head on almost took our head off with this truck top is in my windshield sticking there. I come to and I'm staring at this truck topper that's in my windshield that's at like neck height. And so there's just like life, right? I got kids, but I'm processing this trauma. I'm starting to feel relief, but I'm on medication. I'm taking antidepressants, I'm taking sleep medication. I'm finally starting to try and get my balance life back. And I remember getting blood work done and the doctor's like, man, you're, you're pretty young to have this low of testosterone. I'm like, where should I be at? He's like, we're at like 300. And most guys that range are like 55 and 60. (laughs) And he's like, you're 24, man, you should be at least at like six, 700. And so I'm just trying to put my life back together and, and move forward and push forward. And every week I'm starting to feel relief. And so Periodically through those times, my counselor would ask, What about the drinking? I'm like, nah, I think that's just a it's just a byproduct of the trauma and PTSD. So once I'm once I'm done addressing that, then it shouldn't be an issue. So we get through nine months of nine months of therapy and we're I'm tapped. I've gone through every disturbance I have, I've revisited some you know, it brought up some childhood stuff. It brought up some, some other emotions and feelings. And, uh, I'm like, Hey, Hey Debbie, I think I'm, I'm not saying I'm good to go, but I feel like I'm, I'm ready for the next part of my life. And she goes, what does that look like? I remember talking to her just saying, like, I think, I think I need to look at this alcohol thing. And she was like, well, if you need help, you know, let me know and we can kind of process that, but we had been through so much of my trauma. I wanted to keep that like just special, right? It, it, it was so rewarding that I didn't want to throw something else in the mix. And um, so I, I started meeting with this pastor. He's kind of meeting with me periodically He's like, hey man, I'm starting this recovery meeting and I know you were sober and I think it'd be great for you to be a part of this and, and help guys along the way. And I'm a helper, right? I'm like, I fixed myself. I don't have PTSD anymore, but it's still like completely in my life. But I'm just not, I'm not suicidal anymore. I don't have the anxiety anymore in my life. I don't have the depression anymore in my life. I don't have the the nightmares or reoccurring thoughts. Jim, I mean, I, I swore to you, my life wouldn't change, So that would be my everyday life. And man, it wasn't overnight, but over a time period, I could sit here and tell you, I haven't had a panic attack since I stopped doing counseling EMDR. I could tell you, I've probably had two nightmares, three nightmares in the last five years. I had a little bit of anxiety that's probably because I had too many cups of coffee I can tell you that much right and uh, so I go to this meeting I hear these guys talking about recovery and I'm sitting there thinking man they've got something I don't have I thought I knew what sober was was but you know I didn't I just remember leaving and I'm and I'm and I'm praying something I've done a long time I'm praying out to God and I'm like, Hey, this is, this is that last piece. And I don't know if it's a long-term issue. I, I don't know what it looks like, but if you can, if you can take this, this alcohol out of my life, I'll serve others. I'll pay it forward. If you can take this out of my life, because a lot of people told me at this point in time, it's an issue. And it's time for me to get out of my own way of thinking I need this gone. And so I woke up the next morning. It's St. Paddy's Day. I'm Irish. We drink. The previous St. Patty's Day, I'm in Boston. Dropkick Murphy's getting kicked out for being intoxicated before they even went on the show. I'm hammered just because I was so drunk. I didn't even do anything. Just outside just being that that hammered, right? And just loud. And I'm at a concert and I'm loud. And so I'm like, I can't repeat that. So I'm sober day one, St. Patty's day, day two, Thursday, day three, Friday, go home, spend time with my family Saturday. Do I go out? Nope. Just go to dinner, take the wife to dinner, come home Sunday. Might go to church. Didn't go to church. Wednesday. I find myself at that study again listening to what they had they lost everything from the outside looking in my life was great man I had a book had a movie to come out you know was finding this relief from trauma had a had a fiance at the time kids house truck but I was missing something and uh I didn't find it till that moment and so it took me years it was years of, of diving into that trauma and then coming to the place of like gosh I am an alcoholic that was tough Cause in, in the in the rooms and in my recovery and my relationship with God, it's, it's talking about how powerless we are. And I felt like I was a powerhouse back in the day, you know, 145 pound kid carrying a 60 pound pack, 16 hours a day digging line. I was a powerhouse, but I'm powerless to something. I had to surrender to it. The one thing that I don't, that I hate, but it was a humbling experience to say, man, I can't have a drink, not even one. And so, you know, fast forward to a little over four years of sobriety and living a life that many people thought wouldn't be possible just because of the path I was on. I didn't think it was. I couldn't even begin to comprehend it.
0: You finally read sobriety. And I know you want to do something. You just mentioned you want to serve. Yeah. Where did that
1: take you from there? So I started, so I was speaking the entire time, you know, and what what transformed is the fact that I started dealing with my stuff. And when I got sober and I was speaking to trauma and addiction and recovery, it, it was like very surface level, you know, I've got a really impactful story and I, and I know that and, um, I want to utilize that to help others. And so when I'd speak, I, I, I know that it, it touched people, but it kind of stopped there. Right. And so I was thinking, and, you know, in prayer, because I pray for sobriety, I got it. So I might as well keep praying. Right. So I'm deepening that relationship with God. And he's like, Hey, I want you to open up a Christian treatment center for, for first responders and civilians. And I'm thinking like the old phone jack lines, right? I'm like, this thing's plugged into the wrong wrong line because I'm a knuckle dragging hotshot and I know absolutely nothing about, let alone business, but a treatment center. And so a week later, it comes back in my head. And so I talked to my, my pastor. I'm like, hey, and I'm hoping in the back of my head, I'm like, I'm hoping he sits there and says, Brennan, I think you're biting off more than you can chew. And I tell him what I want to do. And he's like, man, I've been, I've been praying for something like this for you. And I'm like, Bob, what am I, how am I going to do this? He's like, God will make it happen. And I'm like, well, you got to help. He's like, I'm a pastor, man. I've never been in business. I went from being a postal man to, you know, he went from being an Olympic gymnastics to a postal man to a pastor. He said, oh, he's, I'll help you with how I can. And from that moment, we opened in nine months. So business partners, financing, clinicians, programming, space, insurance, everything that goes into it. And I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what a level of care was. I didn't know deductible out of pocket. I didn't know what a treatment plan looked like, but God put those professionals in my life to be able to say, Hey, I know this. I've done this for the last 20 years. Let me put this together for you um you know got a guy who was good in business that wanted to give back he's like I know business let me let me put this together for you and so we've almost been open for three years um we've seen men from all over the country all different walks of life from millionaires all the way down to uh you know I need a pair of shoes and everything in between we've had uh the fortunate ability to be able to work with uh some first responders, some firefighters, some former police officers, some veterans that have come through our, our program that have been able to find healing and long-term sobriety. And man, there's, there's been no greater gift than that opportunity. Cause I thought the fire service is all I had. That's all I was ever going to be. And I'll never be better than June 29th, 2013. I thought I'd never be better than that person. I thought it'd be a, a, a dishonor to change who I was. And uh, man, there's no greater joy than I get to to serve at full fast recovery and work with people that have I've been in similar shoes, not their shoes, but I've been in I've been in some Nikes, you know, I've been in some some Converse. It might not be the same brand, same color, but I've definitely walked walked a few miles in my own life. And there's there's such a a joy I get today to share that with others. And so I just continue to try and raise awareness, just try and help break that stigma and and, and trying to allow people to know it's okay to get help by opening up and saying, hey, these are the things that I've had to address in my life to move forward. And this is an opportunity for someone that may be sitting there thinking the same thing like, it ain't possible. It is. It is. And, And you don't have to do it alone. That's the biggest thing. I thought because no one knew my experiences, how could I relate? And I robbed myself of years of healing because of that. You know,
0: by going through therapy, you're able to kind of work out, it seems like everything to do with that incident, to do with uh, the abandonment, the, you know, why am I here? You -hmm. still had this, all this pressure though of, why are you here? You know, and and that, that just I imagine that pressure of you have to make something of yourself. You have to yeah. if you're the one that's left, you can't be a nobody. You have to be extraordinary and yeah. truly make a difference. That that pressure, you know, almost eight years into this, do you feel like you've lived up to that? Is that pressure gone? Are you finally doing? what do you think you were meant to be, to do?
1: When I first, uh, that's a solid question, Jim. That's a good question. I don't think I've been asked that. When I first set out to do this center, I had this insane, large, huge facility set out. We're talking $10, $15 million facility. And that pressure is what I felt then. And as I started to realize it didn't really matter what the building looked like, didn't really matter where it was set in, what mattered is that I provided a place that people could find healing and they felt loved and they felt like they were getting true individual care. And I, I knew what my purpose was, and that pressure, that pressure's still there. I'd be lying if I said it wasn't, right? Um, but today, it's a healthy amount of pressure. It's a healthy amount of uh, responsibility is what I feel more so than pressure, uh, a healthy amount of drive and purpose and, and dedication than, than, than a pressure. You know, I feel, like, I feel like pressure is forced. And today, it's not forced for me. It's something I get the honor to do. And I know my boundaries and I know what, what's good for me and I, and I know what's not good for me. And if I don't know... I've got 10 other people that are around me to be able to, to be able to help me figure that out. And so I truly do feel like I'm living out my purpose today because if I would have went back to the fire service, um, I feel like I would have been selling people short of what I have to offer. You know uh, not that that, that relationship is closed. Not that it's not there. Not that I don't, love the fire service i'm up i stay as active in the community as i can but i'm on a different path and it was a struggle for me because i didn't want initially i don't want the i didn't want those gifts i don't want to be sitting behind a desk you know it, it, it was a struggle trying to figure out how to go from swinging a tool or writing emails to building programs and but i'm glad i did because it's it challenged me in a way that the fire service challenged me early on physically and mentally in it. So it, it it's like a, it's like a reinvigorating challenge to me to be in this, this field. And I get to do it. I'm not forced to, I don't feel the pressure, but I get the honor of being able to walk alongside people through their addiction and trauma. And that, that, that brings me great joy.
0: Yeah. You mentioned earlier, uh, you know, when people were trying to give you advice, early on you mentioned you know somebody said i'm sure there's multiple people that said this that there's a reason there's a reason you're here and uh it took a while but it certainly sounds like you're living that reason
1: yeah i feel that in my heart
0: that's pretty it's pretty deep significant powerful whatever whatever word you want to use um I don't know. say it's, it's you can't call it a happy ending, but it's it is making something out of a pretty pretty really shitty situation.
1: Yeah, and we we have to right. It's out of necessity for survival. And then I I think about that excitement right, and I'm like, man, I'm only 29. I've got another. I'm a kid. I've got another. 30, 40 good solid years in me and I'll be better tomorrow than I am today. That's, that's awesome. Well, let me ask you this
0: yeah. then, you know, what's next? <laughs> what's what's next? next? Yeah. What, what else do you have up your sleeve? I mean, uh, there's gotta be even a, a bigger picture than this, I think.
1: Yeah. There's, there's a part of me that knows and there's a part of me that that wants to leave it mysterious in my own mind. So I think what's next for me is, you know, for Hold Fast Recovery, I really want to get it to just, just a place that, is very solid in its foundation you know we're two and a half years in and so we have a really solid culture very very awesome treatment program some some phenomenal success in people's long-term sobriety not just in our program but when they leave here right we're looking at a 75 to 80 percent success rate when they complete our 90-day program you look at the industry average it's the complete opposite and so i want to i want to hold on to that i want to continue to mold it and then I want to recreate it in other parts of the country. Um, And I want to make sure that those other facilities fit the need and don't recreate the wheel, right. Of, of what's been going on. So that's, that's one thing um, that I want to do because I'll always be a part of Hold fast recovery. I'll always be a part of this program. And so I just want to continue to see it grow and foster into that initial, that initial idea that I had in 20 years right a healthy amount of 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 drive and and purpose within that and so i want to see that grow um i want to write more books i really want to put a book out that dives into kind of the aftermath you know when i first initially wrote the first book um it was really about kind of my childhood and and the the tragedy and in some of a little bit of after, but it really didn't, I didn't get an opportunity and I don't think it was the right place either for it. Um, Didn't really get an opportunity to drive, dive into the conversation we just had. I want to put that, that pen to paper, but with hindsight, looking back of like, okay, that was, you know, now that I'm, I've got four years sober, now I can really look back and and go through and, and dissect a lot of that and share some of those experiences and you know walk through I want to put a a book out that's like a just like getting getting help for for in layman's terms you know I think a lot of people that read my book they said it was a really quick read um very emotional very powerful and I want to do something that puts the clinical aspects of mental health at that kind of same same playing ground because half the battle is knowing what you're fighting right and I think if we can put where the battle's at in a very simplistic way with, with examples, um, that people can relate to. I feel like that would be that much more encouraging. Um, so that's, that's on my list, uh, continuing to speak, you know, through COVID that was really, really hampered and dampered, And so it's just starting to pick back up. So I'm going to continue to do that. And then we kind of kick around a mental health podcast idea. Um, I, I, I feel like I feel like if I were to do it, I, I feel like I could offer some insight, and in, in just strictly stay within mental health and, and bring on some professionals and kind of like the book idea, just bring it down to bring it down to our our terms, our language, um, so that it doesn't seem like such a huge mountain to climb because it it is, but it isn't. You know, when you start talking talking about EMDR and CBT and DBT and you start you know throwing out neural pathways and things like that, it becomes very convoluted and it's like. I didn't go to school for that, so I don't I don't know it. And most first responders want to know what they're going through, and so I think something like that would be pretty rad. Um, All you need is a fancy mic.
0: I mean, come on, look at this—hundred <laughs> uh,
1: 100, 100 yeah, bucks, you know? And <laughs> yeah, I know there's a lot of hard work that goes into a podcast. Um, there's a lot of hard work that goes into a book, and there's a hard lot of hard work that goes into whole fast recovery. And so I want to make sure that my, my family is important too. And that I, that I, those time investments are, are getting the proper attention. And so I know God will open the doors when they're supposed to be open. That's, that's kind of where I'm at. And um, anything big and crazy, nothing at this point in time, you know, but I think those kind of three or four things are, are really what's, what's important to me right now. And those are kind of within the next year or two that I want to make sure that those are tackled and moving along.
0: I, I love all that. Those are all, those D all the above, you know, yeah. for me now, you know, because what you do, what you offer, and I, I don't know if you realize this or not, but it really is hope, you know, to, to go through everything you've gone through. I mean, even before you got on the hot shots and to come yeah. out on the other side, like you are now, you give people hope and, and I hope you realize that. So keep getting out there, keep doing this stuff. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Yeah, absolutely. It's huge. Yeah. So where can people find information about hold fast recovery? And then also just, you know, your contact if they wanted to
1: reach out and have any questions. Yeah. So, um, www.holdfastrecovery.com. Uh, my contact information is Brendan, B-R-E-N-D-A-N, at holdfastrecovery.com. And then social media, too. I'm pretty responsive on that. So Instagram, I think, is Donut underscore 928. And then uh, I think my Facebook page is just Brendan McDonough. Um And you can shoot me a message and usually I get back to people within a day, but if it's urgent, you know, call into the center at 1-800-351-6858. I got to
0: ask another question. Have you ever met anybody else nicknamed donut? No. This guy right here. Jim, you?
1: Are you serious?
0: I am serious. Do you have a tattoo to prove it? No, not yet. We're going to change out when you get here. You have one. I'll get a match. Yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. Uh, I woke up, uh, as a kid from a sleepover earlier than everybody else and there were donuts and I ate more than I probably should have <laughs> and earned a nickname donut. This nice. is like, this is like third or fourth grade kind of thing. So I've had it for okay. a while. So yeah, I mean, I just, I didn't get it just for my last name. I earned it.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, that's true. So I put it down too. So about every week, someone will come in, with well, their staff member, even a client, they'll bring in, they'll drop off about a dozen donuts in my office. And um, yeah, I, I go to town for sure, man, I, I love donuts. And even though it's not how my nickname came about, but uh, that'll be for another day. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, hey,
0: I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and just sharing everything because I know it's not easy. Like, I can't imagine Uh, doing this as often as you've done it but it's still such a powerful story and and man continue to share it whether it's just doing everybody else's shows or doing your own again if i could do it you could certainly do it you've done a lot more no (laughs) so thank you so much brother i really appreciate the opportunity yeah so he's brendan and i'm jim and we are out of time take care listeners and viewers